Our children will live until they're 90, but we only get them for 18 years, which is less than a quarter, really, a pebble in their foundation. It's the eighth anniversary of the 50 miler I ran in 2011, and I remember going to the meeting in the pitch black morning before the race started and hearing the sermon on how to survive an ultra. And one of the things they preached about was to be hyper aware of every minute detail because a pebble in a shoe is no big deal for a 5K, but it can shred the foot to smithereens after 50 miles. I had to find a spot to work where the short boys wouldn't find me, so I ducked into Katie's room in the basement and set up the laptop and my mess of papers onto her desk. But her desk is also her vanity, so a huge and heavy mirror is propped up on top of it and leans heavily against the wall carrying teenage burdens and secrets that won't be discovered for another decade or so. While I sit here, I see her. Me, really, but all this eye contact is forcing me into third person. She looks like her dad, like Vern. Vern, her dad, is a pebble in her shoe. I am a pebble in my own children's shoes. We all have them. We all are them. What kind of heaviness will my children carry because of me? Will they see full lips turned down with contempt? Full cheeks pressed back with tension? Furrowed brow of anxiety? But will they also see those laugh lines? Those footprints in the sand where I taught them how laughter carries pain when we need a break from it all? They will see pain as I do now. But will they also see hope as I do now? What do we see when we take a moment to look into the vanity? Grace is a funny thing. One sweltering summer night several years ago, Jason and I were fitfully trying to sleep. Our bodies were tacky with humidity. We angrily kicked the sheets onto the floor, splayed our bodies into starfish shapes so that nothing was touching. After we positioned our standing fan at the base of our bed, we turned it on high so that it would blow up along our sweaty bodies into our hair and faces. It was that hot. All of a sudden, my stomach started to cramp and I squirmed around and tried desperately to ward off the inevitable, but I just couldn't hold it in anymore. I let out a hot, stinky, rotten egg fart and the fan instantaneously blew it into our faces. We got divorced shortly thereafter. Grace is like a cool breeze. If we receive it, if we respect it, then it will be our greatest gift. But if we turn our back on that gift, the stink will buckle our knees. I spent a few years turning my back on Grace, fighting it, trying to manipulate my own life by pure will and determination, and rather than find freedom, I found myself bound up with a mess I made by trying to get out alone. Both Jake and Freddie went to a Christian private school out here in Abbotsford for their earlier grade school years. For the most part, I had a hard time fitting into the Christian school mold because I had spent so much of my life being inundated with Christian teaching that by the time our kids went to school, I was like, up to here with it all. At that point, I just wanted to poke the proverbial bear a bit, just to be a brat. 
So when their school announced they'd be hosting a family fun night where they'd air the Canucks game on the big screen and fill the gymnasium with sticky children and head lice, I decided that no matter what, I'd make sure to put the fun in family fun night. I proceeded to fill two travel mugs with vodka and coke, passed one to my son's grade three teacher at the time, who was now one of my closest and dearest of friends, and settled into my lawn chair on the gym floor. I was delirious with gleeful rebellion. I had dreads, tattoos, a nose ring, and a Starbucks coffee mug filled with booze. I am sure I was a real treat. I guess I love being the exception. I wanted to show the whole world that it's possible to love Jesus and drink, that we can be loving mothers and have tattoos, that sometimes even caring and compassionate parents can loop steel rods through their faces. I'm guessing that for the most part everybody already knew all that and my efforts were a whole lot more about my own personal issues than anything else, but I'm glad I was able to work through said issues because public drinking could really start to interfere with my life and the dreads were getting a bit heavy to lug around everywhere. I remember the day that I started dreading my hair. I had just gone through one of the roughest times of my life and I was doing everything I possibly could to gain back the control I had lost. I went on an all raw food diet. I stopped running. I read my Bible every day. I burned incense and sat in the middle of my bed and meditated on my pain. I read books about nature and spirituality and grace. I journaled, I painted. I wanted so much to believe that I was turning a corner and making something good and pure out of my life. But as I look back on that time, I see now all that I was doing was white knuckling it. I was squeezing the life out of myself in hopes that I would be able to shape Susie into somebody else. But that one day, I knew my efforts weren't working. That when I sat down on the floor of my colorful room and stared into the full-length mirror, I still saw myself and nothing else. I sectioned out my hair and started knotting my hair into fluffy knots. I felt raw when I was finished, like I was returning to the earth as if I had nothing left of me. The deadness on my outside was finally starting to match the deadness on the inside. This all sounds so awful, but it was the part of a grieving and healing process that I needed to walk through. I became attached to my grief, carrying around my deadness as if it was some sort of wilted security blanket. And just when I would start to feel alive, I would reach up and roll my fuzzy dreads between my fingers and I'd remember who I was all over again. All the while this was happening, I was learning about grace, and so my soul would fight this urge to return to the deadness, despite my best efforts to stay stuck in the knot. I began running again and eating real food. I started plugging myself into life rather than hiding in my smoke-filled room by myself. A healing was happening, and I could feel it. Instead of feeling the comforting fuzziness of my dreads, I began resenting the way the knots were sticking out in an unruly matter, and so one day I started to comb out the really messy ones. My inside, my soul, was starting to breathe again, and I needed my outside to breathe too. One by one, I combed out my dreads, and bit by bit I became lighter, no longer holding on to the baggage that I thought that I deserved to carry. I was rising up from the earth and becoming Susie again, but a stronger, more loving version of me. I still have huge hair, but it's a lot lighter than it was, that's for sure. 
My dreads played a part in my healing process, and for that I am thankful. From time to time, I do miss them. The soft, pillowy way they'd circle my head like a hug, wrapping around me in primal self-preservation. I don't need my dreads to hold me down anymore. I embrace who I am now, and I am at peace. One year, when Jake, Freddie, and Katie were small, and Jason and I were still together, the Van Dykes took the whole entire family to the Mayan Riviera in Mexico. One day, near the end of our trip, we took a bus ride to the Mayan ruins, where a tour guide took us around the pyramids and gave us a history lesson. There was no air conditioning in the bus, and when we got to the ruins, the sun was blazing and unapologetic. By the time we got through the tour, my skin was tacky with humidity and I had rivers of sweat dripping down the cavernous bits of my post-baby body. The tour guide spat us out at the top of a spiraling staircase that looked out over the endless expanse of turquoise ocean water. Breakers crashed against the sand at the base of the stairs. Each wave drew me in, curled toward me like lover's fingers. Nobody else went down except me, and I took off down that set of spiraling stairs as if I was setting out to save my life. When my feet hit the hot sand, I peeled off and threw down my outer layer of clothes and dove into the water. My feet found the bottom and I stood up, stretched my arms out wide and welcomed whatever the universe had to give me. And the next wave hit hard and threw me down to the base of the ocean. I struggled a bit, somersaulted, panicked and eventually fought my way back up, but I made it to the surface. A little bruised and hurting for air, but I made it. I made it. On one of our days in Mexico, we went snorkeling with turtles. I can't even explain to you how much I loved seeing those beautiful beasts up close, and I'll never forget as long as I lived the way I felt when one of them swam right up beside me, poked its head out of the water while we bobbed about together there like old friends, worn skin, hard shells, and then went back down to the ocean floor. These turtles were so big that I wouldn't even have been able to wrap my arms around one of them. There's a story that I read in a book once written by a well-known psychologist, Gerald May. May wrote a lot of brainy stuff, but once he was diagnosed with a terminal illness, he changed up his material. In his much more personal book, he tells a story about how he had taken his son fishing, and as they were hiking through the forest to get to the water's edge, May came across a deserted party scene filled with empty beer bottles and garbage, and in one corner he found an empty turtle shell, turned upside down and filled with cigarette butts. He spun around and directed his son around the scene so that he wouldn't see the carnage. Later on in the book, May talks about how he returned to that spot after his diagnosis. And there upon the path was a turtle shell, natural, untouched, and in perfect condition. He picked it up and wept as he held it in his hands and then brought it home, placed it on a shelf in his office as a reminder of both grace and the capability of human darkness. Years ago, after I closed the book, I drove over to Jason's work to meet him for a walk around the campus to talk about our divorce, and as we circled the university's lake, a turtle walked across our path and settled into the water. Old friends, worn skin, hard shells.